It's good to be with you this morning. I'm so thankful for the way that our elders and our deacons serve this church so faithfully. Um, Michael has done a wonderful job filling in as our beloved Pastor Ron is on some vacation time and other ministers are coming back and forth from vacation and ministry. So I'm just so thankful for all the ways that God uses our leaders to encourage us, to, um, to show us the way. And so grateful to the Lord for them. Uh, if you've got a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me, as Michael said, to Colossians 1. If you're visiting with us here this morning, we've been a, in a sermon series over the last couple of months in the book of Colossians. And the Co- Colossians is, is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church that was located there in the city of Colossae, a very important city in the Roman Empire. He wrote this letter to a church that he had neither visited nor planted, but it was a church that he dearly loved. Over the last several weeks, Paul has shown us the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ in all things. In verses 15 through 17, he showed us the supremacy of Christ in all of creation. Verse 18, he showed us the supremacy of Christ as the head of the church. And in verses 19 to 23, he's shown us the sufficiency of Christ as our Redeemer. The question is, why has He shown us all these things? Is it so that we will have right doctrine? Well, this young Colossian church was certainly in need of that. There were false teachers seeking to diminish the role and person of the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to undermine the teaching of the apostles. They absolutely needed to have the right doctrine, and so do we. But it's more than just getting our doctrine right. It's about getting our life right, too. Having the right doctrine isn't just for God's benefit. It's for ours. How so? Well, when you experience suffering, when you experience hardship, what you believe about God shapes your understanding of that suffering. Those beliefs are like glasses we put on to view that suffering and hardship. They help us interpret what we are seeing. They also help us respond to what we are seeing. Some of you know that I got new glasses a couple of months ago. I went from a single focus lens to a pair of progressive focus lens glasses. And it's made all the difference in the world for me. I I can see my notes. I can see the flowers. I can even see the reeves up there. I can see everything now. It has been revolutionary for me. But before I got my progressive lens... I would come into the office in the morning and the first thing I would do was take my glasses off and I would leave them off the rest of the day. It's, it's so that I could see my computer screen. And that would work fine unless I looked up from my screen and needed to go outside the office. And when I did that, I couldn't see as well. Everything was blurry and I had to put my glasses back on. Some of us wear spiritual glasses that only have a single focus lens. That means that we have a limited view of God's love. We only see God's love as giving us good things in life. Things like a happy family, a fulfilling job, good health and material blessings. But when we experience hardship and suffering, God's love for us gets out of focus. Our single focus vision of His love for us can get blurred. What we need are progressive lenses that can help us see God more fully, to get a clearer picture of who He is and what life in Him looks like. Think of our text this morning 
as an eye exam from the Apostle Paul. An assessment of how well we are seeing. Are you ready for it? Let's look at Colossians 1, beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the Word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You so very much for the Apostle Paul. Not just for the words that he wrote, but for the life that he lived and left as an example for us. Father, would You teach us through these words that You would open the eyes of our hearts that we truly might see to see everything that we need to see about you and about us. We pray that you would help us do that in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, I was talking to a friend this week, and he was sharing with me a really sweet story about one of his kids. And it was so good, I thought, I want to share this with you all. And I asked for his permission to do that, and he said I could. As it turns out, this particular child was in need of an eye exam. His parents suspected that he was having some trouble seeing clearly. And so they took him to the eye doctor. And then when it came time to read the eye chart, the eye doctor covered his eyes, or one of his eyes, and asked him to read a line. He looked at the line and told them that he couldn't read it. The eye doctor asked him if he could read the next line up. He looked intently at it and responded, no. The eye doctor asked him if there were any lines that he could read. He examined the entire entire eye chart and said that he couldn't read any of the lines. Well, they began to get a little worried until they caught out caught on to what he was saying. You see, he was at the age where he was still learning how to read. He thought they were asking him to read the line as if it was a word. All he saw were a bunch of letters that didn't make sense to him. He could see the letters fine. He, he just couldn't read them. Does that ever happen to you when you encounter something troubling in your life, something difficult in your life? You can see what's happening, but you can't make any sense of it. It's like trying to read an eye chart. You can see the letters, but they're not readable, nonsensical. Try as you may, you can't understand what's going on. You can't make sense of what's happening. That was certainly happening to these young Colossian believers Their spiritual sight and vocabulary were still developing. That's why the false teaching about Jesus was so dangerous. It was limiting the view of who He was. The problem was that they couldn't see it for what it was. They didn't see how dangerous it was for their faith in Christ. It makes me wonder what we are blind to in our own culture. What dangers are we encountering but not recognizing? What false truths are are being passed off as gospel truths? I think for the American Christian in particular, one of the great enemies is the idol of comfort. The idol of comfort is an inordinate desire to experience pleasure and enjoy a particular quality of life. But the danger of the idol of comfort is that it seeks to avoid discomfort at all cost. It has to. It avoids things or people that make us uncomfortable. It avoids difficult topics, difficult personalities, 
difficult neighborhoods, difficult decisions. It shields us from anything that will jeopardize that comfort. In the interest of self-disclosure, I experienced that recently. Some of you know that I just got back from El Salvador. I went on a vision trip with sports outreach to the capital city, San Salvador. And I was going down there to visit my good friend Humberto Alvarez, who directs sports outreach there in San Salvador. And I was also there to visit the Tomas Rodriguez community. I was exploring what a transformational partnership might look like between this community and our church. Before we left, I emailed the trip coordinator about my hotel room arrangements. I specifically wanted to know if I would have a roommate since I was traveling alone. I was hoping that I would have my own room. She responded that I did have a roommate. And my immediate reaction was disappointment mixed in with a little self-entitlement. I thought to myself, I'm the pastor. I should have my own room. Now, why was I disappointed? Because I didn't want to be bothered by a snorer or a talker or someone with a difficult personality. I wanted to be as comfortable as possible. Isn't that sad? And that's what the idol of comfort does to our heart. It makes us turn inward and become self-focused. It leaves no room for discomfort or disruption. It stunts our growth. Thankfully, God loves His name too much. And He loves me and us too much to let us remain captive to our idol of comfort. He often breaks that idolatry through suffering. He disrupts our inordinate desire for comfort through the very thing that we fear most, pain. C.S. Lewis wrote once that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts to us in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Paul had a unique perspective on suffering. Prior to his conversion, he inflicted a great deal of suffering on Christians He was a one-man Isis, persecuted and killing Christians like Stephen. Now, many years later, he was the one who was suffering, languishing in a prison cell, movements restricted, comforts stripped, all because he now followed Christ, because he led others to follow Christ, because he called his countrymen to repentance, and he paid for it dearly. He recounts the nature of his suffering in 2 Corinthians 11. He said in verse 24, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers. Danger from robbers. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Now, when we read about this kind of suffering, I'll be honest, it's easy for us to check out. It's hard to read, but it's even harder to relate. That's not the kind of suffering that we encounter. We do not face that kind of suffering for our faith in Christ. Certainly our brothers and sisters living in places like North Korea, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Syria, they know that kind of suffering, but but we don't. 
Now there may come a time when that changes. When living for Christ could land you in prison. But that time has not yet come. But the suffering Paul experienced didn't just happen to him. It happened in him as well. His suffering wasn't just external, it was also internal. Continuing from that list in 2 Corinthians 11, he writes in verse 28, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now that verse is so endearing to me. Paul was anxious for the churches that he helped plant. The churches where he knew people. The churches that had supported him. The churches that had been threatened with false teaching like the Colossian church. These churches kept him up at night. They kept him on his knees. They were like having teenage sons and daughters. He was constantly wondering what they were doing, how they were doing, if they were walking in the way of Christ or in the way of the world. And yet there is another clear example of the kind of suffering that he endured as a follower of Christ. It is the internal suffering caused by wrestling with sin. He writes in Romans 7, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Do we not suffer at the hand of the enemy of our soul? The one who would tempt us to pursue our own will and our own way? The one who would deceive us into believing that God is somehow holding out on us? The very lie that caused our first parents to fail is still incredibly effective. We suffer the flesh that desires the very thing that God says that we cannot have. We suffer saying no to the flesh when everyone around us seems to be saying Yes. And what Paul is saying is this. Suffering for the gospel is not only unique to him, it is unique to all Christians. To be a Christian is to suffer. Whether the source of that suffering comes from without or within. Jesus said that if anyone would come after him, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. To be a Christian is to suffer. Let us not be surprised by our suffering, but expect it. But suffering isn't just a reality for the Christian life. It's actually a necessity of the Christian life. What could the purpose of suffering be? Well, I think one of the greatest fears we have when it comes to suffering is that our suffering is pointless, that it has no purpose. We usually feel that way when we can't see any good reason for our suffering. We can understand suffering for something that we do wrong. That makes sense to us. You do bad things, bad things happen. But suffering for doing what's right, what's God-honoring, that doesn't make much sense to us. It's like looking at the eye chart and trying to read the lines. It's nonsensical. So how does Paul understand the purpose of his suffering? Well, he gives us two purposes here. The first we see in verse 24. Paul says that his suffering is for the sake of his body, that is, the church. His suffering is meant to build up the church. It's meant to strengthen and help the church. It's meant to create health and vitality. John Newton once wrote, 
God appoints His ministers to be sorely exercised, both from without and within, that they may sympathize with their flock and know in their own hearts the deceitfulness of sin, the infirmities of the flesh, and the way in which the Lord supports and bears all who trust in Him. Suffering gives us, gives us a perspective that we wouldn't otherwise have. It allows us to enter into and to speak into one another's pain. I found that to be so true in my own life, not just as a pastor, but as a Christian. God has used my suffering to encourage others. When we had to close the church we planted in Missouri, we suffered greatly. And we wondered what on earth was the purpose for our suffering. One purpose I found was to encourage and help other church planters. To come alongside them and help them learn from our mistakes. To foster growth in areas of weakness. And so often, it feels like suffering subtracts from our life. It takes away what we deem valuable. But in God's economy, it actually adds to our life. It adds by subtracting. Suffering completes God's work. Listen to what Peter wrote to the church. From 1 Peter 1, we read, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, when gold goes through the refining process, the heat of the fire separates the dross. It separates the impurities from the gold. All the impurities rise to the surface where they can be removed. The suffering, the the firing that gold goes through adds value by subtracting the dross, by taking away the impurities. Every single one of us has experienced suffering in some form or fashion. And God has brought that suffering to our door. And that suffering feels more like a subtraction than an addition to our life. But Paul would show us that it is an opportunity for growth and an opportunity to be a blessing to the church. To walk transparently and faithfully through suffering enriches not only our fellowship, but our witness in the community. I think that idea gets at the second purpose for his suffering. Paul says in verse 25 that it is to make the word of God fully known. In a tangible and real way, our suffering validates the truth of the gospel. It authenticates it. It makes it real and knowable. For those of you who follow Major League Baseball, you know that the Chicago Cubs won their first World Series last year after going 108 years without a title. Fans like my little brother suffered through many, many years of losing. Their suffering through those years was a testimony to their devotion. They never wavered. They never gave up hope. And as much as it pains me as a St. Louis Cardinal fan, I was thrilled for those long-suffering fans when the Cubs won. Their suffering validated their claim as Cub fans. It, It authenticated it. You know, it's one thing for you and I to proclaim the truth of the gospel to a a watching world, but it's quite another thing to live out the gospel implications. Why? Because living out the gospel will cost us. It will involve suffering, whether it's resisting temptation or embracing ridicule. Have you felt that pinch? Or maybe it feels like a blow to the gut. 
Some of you have suffered in the marketplace. You've been passed over for jobs or promotions because you were unwilling to be dishonest in getting a competitive edge. Some of you have suffered in the classroom. You've settled for lesser grades on papers because you were unwilling to plagiarize someone else's work. Some of you have suffered in relationships. You've been dumped because you were unwilling to give away your purity. And by your suffering, you are making the truth of the gospel fully known and complete. And yet Paul goes one step further. He doesn't simply tolerate his sufferings. It says that he rejoices in them. Where on earth does the power to rejoice in suffering comes from? Now, let me be clear here. Paul does not rejoice in suffering because somehow it is inherently good. The things that happened to him, which he just described in 2 Corinthians 11, were awful. They were unjust and cruel. Paul's not some kind of spiritual masochist who enjoys pain. No, the rejoicing Paul experiences in his suffering is linked to the purpose behind it. It was to build up the body of Christ, to encourage them and, and to help them grow. So, so where does that power to rejoice in suffering come from? Well, we read about it in verse 26. Paul references this mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Well, what is that mystery that was hidden and now revealed? Or should I ask, who is that mystery? Well, that mystery is none other than Jesus. Paul's joy through suffering came from the one who suffered himself in the Garden of Gethsemane. The one who asked his father to remove the cup of wrath he was to drink. It came from the one who suffered betrayal at the hand of his friends in his hour of need. It came from the one who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Paul could rejoice in his sufferings because of the sufferings that Jesus had endured for him. Paul could suffer loneliness and separation from friends. Because Jesus experienced ultimate separation from the Father's love upon the cross. Paul could suffer beatings and injustice because Jesus was was beaten and unjustly accused. Paul could endure the suffering that comes from temptation because Jesus had been tempted in every way and yet was without sin. Paul could rejoice in his suffering because Jesus rejoiced in his suffering. Knowing that his suffering meant life For his people. And we too can rejoice in our suffering because Christ suffered for us. But there was another reason for Paul's rejoicing in his suffering. He says in verse 24 I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, in preparing for this sermon, I learned that this verse is one of the most debated verses in all of Scripture. There's been a great deal of ink spilled over this verse. The reason for this debate is that it seems like Paul is saying that that Christ's atonement seemed insufficient. That his suffering atonement was somehow lacking, but, but that can't be right. Not only does the whole New Testament say otherwise, Paul just finished talking about the sufficiency of Christ in our redemption in verses 19 to 23. Paul knew that atonement was the work of Christ alone. So then what does this phrase teach us? Well, most commentators agree that it is a reference to the suffering that is inevitable 
and necessary as God's kingdom faces opposition from the kingdom of this world. Paul was rejoicing because his sufferings were bringing the total nearer the ultimate goal and hurrying the day of the kingdom. But these weren't just his sufferings. They were also Christ's sufferings. Kent Hughes points out that there is an undeniable identification through suffering that is developed between Christ and the church. We see this in the conversion of Saul, who later becomes the Apostle Paul. As he was walking on the Damascus road, he encountered Christ in a blinding light. And Christ said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice he didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? Which, of course, he was. No, he asked, why are you persecuting me? He asked that because Saul was persecuting Jesus in the bodies of his followers. Saul had been making Christ suffer in the people he was persecuting. That kind of identification is deeply encouraging because it reminds us that we are not alone in our suffering. We see that in 2 Corinthians 1 where Paul writes, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our sufferings are Christ's sufferings. Our comfort is Christ's comfort. They are forever linked together in Christ. No wonder Paul rejoiced at his suffering. He knew that Christ had not only suffered for him on the cross, but he suffered with him in his prison cell. And he suffers with you in the boardroom, in the classroom, and the bedroom. You are not alone. Can you see that? So how is your vision this morning? Do you need a prescription adjustment? One that will give you a greater vision for God's work in your life? One that will help you not only embrace suffering, but somehow rejoice in it? One that will help you see your suffering as a means to build up and to encourage this body and bear witness to this community. One that will help validate and make real the truth of the gospel in your life and in the life of your family, the life of this church. Rejoice in your suffering, dear brother and sister. Christ not only suffered for you, He even suffers with you now. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the suffering that You endured for us. You made we who were poor in spirit rich because of laying down Your life on our behalf before the Father, giving to us Your riches, riches in grace, forgiveness, and mercy. Father, thank You that even now when we suffer, We know that You are with us, that You suffer with us. Father, may we be not only encouraged by this, but may we find joy as we suffer, knowing that the good that You will bring through it and from it. Lord, we need faith to believe this. We need grace and mercy in an untold manner to be able to embrace this. So we ask that You would help us, that You would give that to us. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.